You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I spotted a few tweets last Tuesday from Lovecast listeners upset that they would have to wait a whole week to hear my thoughts on the Nashville Statement. The Nashville Statement, if you missed the news, is a brand spanking new manifesto cranked out by old evangelical Christian leaders, all the usual suspects, that for all the news it made, Nashville Statement trended on Twitter for two days. It didn't actually tell us anything we don't already know about right-wing evangelical Christians. The Nashville Statement condemns, quote, homosexual immorality and transgenderism, premarital sex for straights, pre- and postmarital sex for everyone else, and funnily enough, polygamy and polyamory, which the authors of the Nashville Statement described as unbiblical, which anyone who's ever read the Bible knows is bullshit. The God of the Old Testament, the God evangelical Christians lean on to justify their hatred of LGBT people, that God, he approves of polygamy. Indeed, there are whole chunks of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy that read like a Bronze Age polyamory for dummies. God orders men to take more than one wife. Moses had three wives. Solomon had 300 wives. The God of the Old Testament, that dude, also approves of slavery and murdering your own children and other people's children, just for the record. The God of the New Testament, in another bit of awkwardness for right-wing evangelical Christian leaders, approves of loving your neighbor, not judging others, and paying your fucking taxes. Anyway, if you're a listener to The Gist, Slate's daily podcast hosted by Mike Pesca, you didn't have to wait a whole week to hear what I thought of the Nashville statement because I guest hosted The Gist on Thursday while Mike was on vacation. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me and went off, as the kids used to say, on the Nashville statement. I'm a Gist listener. You should be a Gist listener, too. But for those of you who aren't, here's a quick recap. People were literally drowning in their homes in Houston on Tuesday, the nation's fourth largest city underwater, but evangelical Christian leaders weren't going to let something as inconsequential as mass human suffering distract them from the two things Jesus cared about so much but said literally nothing about during his loquacious-as-fuck stay here on Earth. That would be hot, sweaty, gay sex and trans people needing to pee. As a gay person, reading the Nashville Statement was like getting flipped off by someone who's been yelling fuck you in your face for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I know already. You don't like me. Tell me something I don't know. But in the silver lining department and maybe in the didn't know that department, evangelical Christian leaders are no longer pushing, it seems, the Jesus can make gay people straight big lie. The Nashville Statement invites homos to, quote, walk in purity with Jesus. They're inviting us to be single and celibate, not straight. They want us to stop sucking dicks because the thought of men sucking each other off keeps Tony Perkins, national statement signatory, up at night. And they want us to stop getting gay married because all those hot gay honeymoon blowjobs keep Tony Perkins up at night. Instead, they want us to start, quote, living a rich and fruitful life, pleasing to God, which means gay and celibate and single. This is actually a teensy-weensy sign of progress. Right-wing Christian bigots spent decades and millions of dollars, money that could have been spent feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, caring for the sick, but whatever. They spent millions of dollars pushing the idea that Jesus could turn gay people straight. Now they're pushing the idea that Jesus can maybe inspire some gay people to live lives devoid of romance, sex, love, and commitment. 
They've moved from Jesus can make you straight to Jesus can't make you straight, but he might be able to make you lonely and miserable. Sounds like a lousy deal to me, but hey, nice to see evangelical leaders acknowledge the immutability of homosexuality. Gaby steps. Also nice to see within 24 hours of the publication of the Nashville Statement, which was signed by 150 assholes like Tony Perkins, quote, more than 1,000 Christian leaders, pastors, theologians, and advocates signed a 10-point document titled Christians United in support of LGBT inclusion in the religious community, a response to the Nashville Statement, as the advocate reported. The Nashville Statement has been roundly mocked. I have done my part. But we got to take it seriously because it's not just a statement of belief. It is a statement of intent. This is political, not personal. This is politics, not faith. Because if we're talking about faith, people are free to believe whatever they want to believe. But freedom of belief isn't what the folks behind the Nashville Statement are after. They want power. They want the power to impose their beliefs on others. They want their sincerely-ish held religious beliefs, their religious convictions, their biases and bigotries to have the force of law. They're not content to live in a world where gay people are free to marry and they're free to not get gay married and disapprove of gay people who do, or a world where trans people are free to be themselves and they're free not to transition and free to disapprove of people who do, or poly people are free to love more than one partner at a time and they're free to love just one partner at a time and free to disapprove of poly people. No, they want to return us to a world where they're free to persecute queer people with impunity. We're not going to let that happen. The signatories of the Nashville Statement, I say this. Like your Lord and Savior, that world is dead and gone. All right, coming up on today's show on both the micro and magnum Savage Love Casts, I chatted with Andrew Gerza, who specializes in sex and disabilities. Then on the magnum, Jesse Baring, author of Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That, comes on to talk about, well, what else? Penises and why they're shaped like that. And is the size and shape of a penis genetically heritable? In other words, penis havers, does your dick look like your dad's dick? You have to subscribe to the Magnum version of the show to find out. You can do that at www.savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I'm a pansexual, genderqueer, female sexed person from Oregon. I'm 20 and I started having sex with this guy about two years ago. Um, so he fell in love with me, but the feelings weren't mutual and I've, I've never been in love with him, but I really, I like spending time with him a lot and I love fucking him. We have very good sex. <laughs> We're really sexually compatible. And I think it's because we have, um, complimenting kinks plus he has a huge, beautiful penis so that that doesn't hurt the situation. So we have sporadically had sex since we first got together. And it's been sporadic because I'm often out of state for school, but also because historically he has had a hard time emotionally when we hook up because he has wanted like a deeper relationship. And I know that I just like emotionally can't provide that for him. So about six months ago, he ended things in the most definite way that he has to date, saying that he just like can't have casual sex anymore. And of course, like I respected and understood that, but privately, I mourned the loss of his beautiful, beautiful cock. 
So recently, when I was back in town, he texted me asking to hang out just as friends. And I asked if he was sure he wanted to do that because he's found it pretty difficult emotionally to just hang out as friends in the past. And he like he assured me that that's what he wanted to do. So we hung out um, and had sex, of course. But when it first started, I checked in with him and I asked like if he was okay with this. And he assured me that like, yes, he was fine with this. He was like in a different place in his life with our relationship and with all that. So yeah, the sex was great. And I reunited with his amazing penis. Great. And afterwards I checked in with him. And again, he said he was totally fine and just, you know, doing what he wanted to. And that was healthy, but he didn't really like touch or come afterwards, which maybe because like the vibe was more friendly than romantic, but it felt weird. And also he didn't text me for weeks afterwards. And when I texted him asking to hang out platonically, his response was just one line saying that he was on a trip visiting his family. So is it moral of me to seek out sex with him in the future if I have a strong suspicion that it is difficult on him emotionally because I would love to have sex with him again. Right before I sat down to record this week's show, I was dinking through the Savage Love inbox, Savage Love emails, which is 90% of my job. And there was a a letter from a, a woman who basically gets to this. Our sex life has always been lacking, but I thought once we live together in his home city, this might improve. This is typically how it works. People are in a relationship and the sex is lousy, but there's a great emotional connection and they try, they try, they try, they try to make the relationship work because the emotional connection is so great. And oddly enough, this never happens in the reverse. There's never a case where I get a letter from someone who says, the sex is so awesome that I've stuck it out and stuck it out and stuck it out and tried to make the emotional relationship side of this thing work and it's still not working what should i do but the sex is so great and i'm just really curious why this doesn't happen in that way now there are people who can't quit someone there's people who keep circling back and having sex with someone who's bad for them and they know it and i'm not referring to to that particular dynamic i'm referring to people getting themselves into relationships where the sex is awesome or sticking it out because the sex is awesome in a relationship that's functional not that the guy's bad or awful or she's bad or awful but just not quite there there's not quite the connection that they hoped for And yet they're sticking it out because the sex is great and they're hoping the emotional thing will kick into gear. Never happens that way. But it happens constantly in the reverse where the relationship is great. There's a strong emotional connection, but the sex is lousy and people stick it out forever, hoping sexual compatibility will somehow come in time. If you're in this circumstance now, I'm here from the future to tell you that it will not come in time. Sexual compatibility is there or it is not. In very rare cases, it can be manufactured. You can hammer sexual compatibility together. That is the exception to the rule. Anyhow, I'm just curious, caller. I, I, you're young. You're only 20 years old. Perhaps you're not ready to settle down. I'm just curious if the sex is so awesome and his cock is so amazing and ginormous and delicious and stunning and flabbergasting and supercalifragilisticexpialidociousing. Why aren't you trying to make the emotional side work? Why would I would be tempted if I were you if the sex was this great to try to make the emotional side work. But that's not your question. And so we're going to leave that by the side of the road. Your question is, can you in good conscience continue to fuck this guy knowing that for you, it's just about the dick and the sex. And for him, there's feelings and fucking you and knowing that for him, there are 
feelings there. And so you're toying with his emotions perhaps because he may be arriving at sex, not just anxious to get at your amazing genitals uh, in the same way you're anxious just to get at his amazing genitals, but hoping that perhaps if you guys keep fucking long enough that you will catch feelings for him in the same way that he has caught feelings for you. If you know for certain that you will never catch feelings for this guy, that you are never going to stick it out and hope the relationship works because the sex is so great, you can't in good conscience continue to fuck this guy because you're setting him up for a painful fall. You're setting him up for more pain than he's already experienced in this relationship with you. And why? Because you want to jump on his giant, amazing, beautiful cock. Well, there are other giant, amazing, beautiful cocks out there in the world and you could get busy finding another one. His isn't the only one. And then not have to risk inflicting more pain on this guy than that that you've already inflicted. That has already been inflicted on him by this circumstance. It's not your fault that you didn't end up feeling for him in the same way that he felt for you. But now that you know that there is this disconnect, the onus is on you not to exploit him, not to intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or subconsciously leverage his feelings for you against him to get, keep his dick coming. So yeah, you have to cut this off. All that said, he fucked you. There wasn't a lot of cuddling afterwards. And you didn't hear from him for weeks and then you texted him and you got a one-line response saying, out of town. Sounds like he's not up for fucking you ever again. Sounds like he got what he needed or got what he wanted from that encounter and he is done. So this is much more, I think, a hypothetical question than you realize. Hey, Dan. 30-year-old from the Midwest here. Got an issue that I'm not really sure how to deal with. I've been with my wife here for about 10 years. I'm uh, married for five, and about three years ago, our drinking started to get out of control. Um, it got progressively worse, and basically it got to the point where she was just drunk every day. I'd get home from work, she'd be passed out on the couch, and at first it was like, well, shit. And then, you know, you get every day you deal with the same stuff, and you walk home into the same house and the same passed out wife and it just gets to the point where you're so angry and resentful and you know you have those conversations where you need to go to treatment and she's like yeah i know i know i get it i will figure it out and you keep holding on hope that it's gonna get better but you know it just kept getting worse and getting worse and you know you just get angry and then finally, you know, six months ago, almost to the day, she went to treatment. And I thought, awesome, it's going to be better. And she got back, and she was better, but I was not. And I keep setting these arbitrary milestones, like, all right, maybe if she's sober for a month, then it'll be okay. And then a month goes by, and then it's two months, and three months. And now it was six months, and every time, it's, I just can't get myself to a point where I can think about it and put myself in a position not to be resentful. And the more thought I put into it, the more I realize the problem is not her, but it's how fucked up I am. And I just, I guess I need an outside viewpoint. So you say your wife went into treatment six months ago. Have you sought treatment or counseling? Have you attended any Al-Anon meetings, for example? What have you been doing while your wife was in treatment? I have gone to a couple of Al-Anon meetings. 
Mm-hmm. Did you not find them helpful? Not everybody responds to Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly with the gaudy stuff that but I think both orgs indulge in. So they're not for everyone. But did you not find it helpful? A little bit. It was kind of slow process. And the whole, the whole like, you have no control over the alcoholic. They're going to drink whether you do anything or not. Mm-hmm. Was very disheartening. I'm curious why. Why did you find that particular bit of advice disheartening? That 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 you are not in control of this. That this is the alcoholic's problem, not mm-hmm. your problem. Because a lot of people who are in relationships or related to alcoholics uh, have a lot of difficulties struggling with the you know their desire to control that or, or their guilt around their inability to control it, and they end up feeling responsible. And sometimes the alcoholic manipulates the family member into taking responsibility for their what really is a disease. Right. Why did hearing that not help you, that you're not responsible for your wife's drinking problem? Because I just like to be able to fix things, you know, and there's literally nothing you can do. And it's like, it was a really rocky, rocky, like two years when she was drinking mm-hmm. heavy. Right. So you're resent, so you have anger and, and, and resentment still. Are you able to discuss your, yes. I think, completely legitimate feelings of anger and resentment with your wife or is that a no-go area so i don't know how to do it without it being hurtful right because when when she was at home and you'd get home it'd be five o'clock and she'd already be home passed out Mm -hmm. drunk like non-responsive and so you could never then talk about it afterwards and like i've fought so many hurtful terrible things and it's like i don't want to bring up any of that because I just think it would be shitty. You know, I'm not from the school of you have to share everything with a, a spouse or a partner. I think there are some things that you don't say. There are some things that can't be unsaid. There are some things that are so shattering that the loving thing to do is to say, mm-hmm. you know, this may be a feeling I have or this may be a legitimate beef I have, but, you know, this isn't something I'm ever going to say out loud. Maybe this is something we're going to step around. You do need to say it out loud to someone, though. You do need, if not an Al-Anon or a support group, you need a therapist. You need somebody that you can vent this stuff to and process and work through it and find a way maybe to talk about it with your wife that isn't necessarily so destructive, that isn't going to be explosive, that isn't going to be something that you regret saying or that she can't or, or that can't be unsaid. That said, I, I, you know, part of your anger and resentment probably ties to the fact that you know, you see yourself as a fixer, someone who fixes things and takes care of people, and you weren't able to fix this. You weren't able to take care of her. Also, you know, we talk, right. people always say, you know, alcoholism, I just said alcoholism is a disease, and we don't get mad at people who are sick, right? Oh, you have cancer, fuck you. We don't do that. You have cancer, you know, how could you right. do that to me? But there's a difference between cancer and alcoholism because we don't have to watch somebody stuff the cancerous cells in their mouth or pour them down their throat. Day after day after day after day. We do read and there actually is some agency there. The person is making a choice. It's a destructive choice. It's a choice that they're not necessarily in control of. That you know, alcohol is so damaging and so powerful that they don't actually feel free. To, that they don't feel like they're making a choice. That the alcohol is making the choice for them. Although alcohol is an inanimate object or an inanimate liquid. That's, that said – you need to process, you know, alcoholism is a disease, but, you know, it's a disease where someone pours the cancer down their throat. You have probably some lingering anger and resentment about watching her make the choices that she made. And right. that is legit. You know, I'm from a family with a lot of alcohol trouble. 
family with a lot of alcoholics in it. And God bless both my parents. Yep, I'm God aware. bless both my parents for breaking that chain, right? They come from alcoholic families. They had alcoholic parents. Both of them, it stopped with them. And we were, my siblings and I were exposed to it peripherally with our grandparents and some of our uh, other relatives. But my parents didn't succumb. And it was a real act of will on their part. But what I witnessed in the wake of somebody who had an alcohol problem, somebody who was an alcoholic, getting into treatment, getting better, maybe Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe some other program, is that part of Alcoholics Anonymous is taking responsibility. Part of that is taking responsibility for the damage you've done and making amends and, and, and issuing your apologies. Uh, and inherent in the whole making your amends, making your apologies, uh, reaching out to people that you've wronged when you were in the throes of your addiction – is acknowledging their hurt, acknowledging their anger and their resentment. And I'm just curious if there's been any acknowledgement on your wife's part of your hurt, of your anger, of your resentment. Mm. Or if you're just expected to be like, hey, you're better now, thank God, and we're going to pretend it's seven years ago before all this shit started. Exactly. Well, there you go. That's what you need to work through with the wife. There needs to be a controlled setting, I think, with a couples counselor or a therapist, somebody who specializes in addiction, where you get to unpack what those two or three years were like for you, as painful as it might be for her to hear, and that she really sits with that. And some sort of sincere apology or acknowledgement of not just the damage that alcohol did to her, that she had some control and some agency and some complicity there, but the damage it did to you, her liver's in worse shape than yours is, but your psyche was as damaged because of the three years when mm-hmm. she was lost to alcohol as hers was. And she's been in recovery and gotten support and you haven't and you need it. And a big chunk of it's got to come from her. So here's one more question is how do you go from a role of essentially caregiver and babysitter back to the role of husband? You fake it till you make it. You choose to perform a different role. And it may feel like uh, an act at first. But over time, if you can pretend to be husband and you can play that role and make a conscious effort to play that role instead of playing the caretaker, it'll take. It'll begin to feel like who you are again. Remember, you didn't choose caretaker. That was imposed on you. Now you have to choose husband. And let go of caretaker. And trust that she's ready to have a husband and doesn't need a caretaker anymore. Perhaps six months is too soon. Perhaps at six months into recovery, she's still a little too fragile and needs some caretaker. And there's always some caretaker in, in, in a spouse. Like, I take care of Terry. He takes care of me. Also, we are husbands, not nurses. Right? So there's always going to be a caretaking component to right. a relationship. And hopefully a caretaking component from both sides, that you're both taking care of each other. But whatever you mean by how do I be husband now instead of caretaker, at first you be husband now because you force yourself to be husband. And it may feel like a fraud at first. You may feel like you're acting. I'm only acting. It may feel like a performance. But over time, that can become your truth again. But at least initially you're going to have to throw yourself into it. It's going to be an act of will. Okay. Okay. Good luck, man. Last, last thing I'm going to say though, couples counseling, get a therapist. Both of you need to sit down together. This needs to be a mediated conversation you have with your wife. Don't go in there 
and have a let's talk about my anger and my resentment conversation with your six months out of recovery wife without a referee in the room. You're going to need a referee. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. Hello, Dan. This guy here, later 20s, and I have a question about condoms coming off during sex. I have a friends with benefits relationship with a longtime friend, and we have great sex. The one difficulty is that of the eight or so women I've had sex with, she's the only one for whom once in a while the condom will pull off my dick. This happens usually in doggy style, especially if she's moving her pelvis rapidly. I believe my penis is average size, so I don't think the condom is coming off because I'm too small, especially considering I've only ever had this issue with one person. She seems to really enjoy the positions that result in pulling off the condom. So while our strategy right now is not to do those positions, I certainly prefer to be able to pleasure her in the way she likes best. Do you have any recommendations on how to fuck this girl doggy style and still have very safe sex? Side note, she is on birth control pills and neither of us have any STDs. We're both extremely careful about pregnancy. Condoms and birth control pills, belt and suspenders. You're super protected. I don't think you need to stress too much about this. If you get into this position and the condom slips off, and you are doing that thing that I've talked about before that all gay men learned to do in the 80s at the height of the AIDS epidemic, which was enjoy the sex and keep fucking. And every once in a while, your hand just sort of drifted down to check and make sure that that condom was still in place and it didn't pull you out of the moment. Do it often enough and then it becomes something you don't have to do consciously. It almost becomes a part of your autonomic nervous system. Like you don't choose to breathe at night when you're asleep. You just breathe. Get that hand drifting down there to check every once in a while to make sure the condom is there every single time you're in one of those positions or in any position, and it will join breathing in your autonomic nervous system, your autonomic bag of tricks. But since she's on birth control, if the condom slips off momentarily, I don't think you need to have a panic attack or a meltdown about pregnancy. You're pretty well protected. If, however, you want a condom that is never going to slip off, get a female condom. You can shift between different kinds of condoms with the same partner. And a female condom, or as I've called it to some controversy, the Ascan liner of condoms, it's the condom you put in the orifice that you're fucking, and then you fuck that condom in that orifice with your bare dick. Doesn't slip off in those positions. Stays pretty well put. So... Get some female condoms, use those for the doggy style and the other position that you found a problem with. Have regular old dick condoms when you're going to do other positions and shift back and forth as necessary. And why this woman and not other women in these positions with the condom slipping off? Because it's not about your dick. It's about her vaginal canal and the shape of it and the angle, the musculature. There's something about the combo of your dick, her vaginal canal, that position that's sucking the condom right off your cock. Probably pretty great sex as a consequence. It means there's tension and friction there. But if you're worried, get a female condom and your problems in doggy style at least will all be solved. Hi, Dan. 31-year-old straight male calling from the UK and longtime listener. I broke up with my 30-year-old girlfriend two months ago after five years together. The relationship was going well and we had a great connection, but she really wanted to start a family in the next two to three years. We had talked about this before and I felt ambivalent about having kids in the near short term. I know I want to have kids at some point, but two to three years feels too soon, and my preference would be to wait a bit longer. Due to a chronic medical condition, her doctors have encouraged her to have a kid sooner rather than later for several years now. She's gotten more and more concerned about this recently. She gave me an ultimatum, fully expecting me to move up my timelines for children. After an agonizing decision, my feeling was that I could not guarantee wanting kids in such a short period of time. What would happen if in two years, I realized I actually really needed another few years? Ever since this decision, we have had no contact. 
I've been incredibly sad, can't sleep properly at night, and miss her every single day. I had no desire to be single as my relationship was very fulfilling, happy, and I could see a great future together. It's been hard to process everything, and I've been doubting my decision. How do I know if I should throw caution to the wind, marry this girl, and move up my timelines for children? Based off your experience, which decision do people regret more? Breaking up or having a kid earlier than they would have liked? So you're 31 years old, and your girlfriend, who you love very much, your ex-girlfriend, who you miss very much, is 30 years old. And she has a medical condition. Her doctors have advised her to uh, have kids sooner rather than later. And you want kids too. So it's not kids or no kids. You're not being asked to compromise about whether or not to have kids. You're not being issued ultimatums about to be with me, you got to have kids even though you don't want to have kids. You're just being asked to accelerate the kid timeline a bit. And your answer was fuck you. Your answer was no way. Your answer was goodbye. So you're 31 now and the ultimatum was kids in the next two to three years. So you would have been 34, maybe even 35 by the time she had kids. You say you want kids. Maybe you want kids in nine years. Maybe what is your timeline? What, what's your preferred timeline? You want to wait till you're 40 to have your first kid? Okay. Well, your girlfriend's 30. So you're asking her to wait till she's 39 or 40. Even if she had no medical condition, Asking her to wait till she's 39 or 40 ups the odds of her not being able to conceive or the conception being extremely difficult, even in the absence of a medical condition. So this seems to me like a compromise that you should have been willing to make. The compromise between 35 and 40, upping it five years, having kids a little sooner than you might have liked or might have hoped to or you, than you ideally would have liked to because why? Because for shits and giggles – because there was an eclipse, because Brexit? No, because the woman that you love, for her to have kids, for you two to have kids together, you're going to have to do it sooner because medical condition, because doctor's advice, casting her back out into the dating pool to start over again to find someone to have kids with or putting her in a position where she's probably contemplating having kids on her own. This all seems to me a little selfish and a little short-sighted as if you're fixated on your life plan as it existed before you met and fell in love with this particular woman. We often have to adjust our life plans and what we wanted and when we thought we wanted those things based on the people we are with, the people that we fall in love with, the people we can see ourselves having a future with. Sometimes you have to make accommodations and adjustments. And this seems like a reasonable accommodation to make because we're talking shaving a few years off to accommodate her medical condition and recognizing that waiting as long as you might like to wait may result in, even if she had no medical condition, there being complications or problems that your original idea about how long to wait was perhaps unreasonable. And so, yeah, I think you fucked up by breaking up with this woman, by not accepting that, Maybe the universe or fate or whatever woohoo you want to invoke had a different idea about when kids would come into your life. And that's why fate sent this woman into your life. A woman you miss very much. A woman you should call on the phone. A woman you should apologize to and say that you've given this another think and that you're willing to have a conversation and perhaps contemplate and perhaps make a decision. You're going to shit or get off the pot Make a decision about having kids on her accelerated timeline because you love her 
and want to be with her and are willing to make an adjustment to make that possible for you two to be together. Go knock that bitch up is basically my advice. I command you. Wait until you're 40 and she's almost 40. Even if she didn't have a medical condition, unreasonable. In this circumstance, asshole move. Don't be an asshole. Dan, I am not sure why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I want to make sure I do it for the right reasons. I am being hit on by a man who has a mobility disability. He is extremely friendly and smart and has been straightforward and kind in asking me out. I'm disappointed in myself because I haven't given him a straightforward answer. I've been nice and I've been a friend, but I haven't really told him yes or no regarding romantic interests. I think that I am not attracted to him because of his disability. In a shallow sense, it's not as attractive as the more fit men who I usually can get interest from. I feel guilty that this is in my way and think if he didn't have a disability, I might go out with him. However, I think it could be worse if I said yes and allowed him to get his hopes up while I tried to engage in a relationship I don't have feelings for because I felt guilty because of his disability. I was born without a hand, so I have a disability as well. Perhaps he thought that would make me different than other guys that have rejected him. I am surprised by myself as well that even though I have a disability, I am turned off by someone else with a disability. My question is, is it wrong to go out with someone who you're pretty sure you won't develop feelings for just to be nice? Is it shallow not to be attracted to someone for a physical attribute that isn't their fault? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Andrew Gerza. He's a disability awareness consultant and a cripple content creator. His writing has been featured in Out Magazine, New Now Next, and Huffington Post. He's the host of the Disability After Dark podcast, the podcast shining light on sex and disability available on iTunes. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Good, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. So, quite a question. Took an unexpected turn there when the guy admitted that he himself had a disability and so felt a little extra conflicted about the fact that it was this guy's mobility disability that was a turnoff for him, that, that left him feeling not attracted to this guy. Is this common in the disability kind of community or world where disabled people also aren't willing to think about dating other disabled people? I think it is common. Yeah, I think it's something. It's, and it's something that's happened to me as a disabled queer person. Um, I have had the same experience where I've seen somebody with a disability and said, "No, no, I don't think I would date them because they have a disability." And so I think it really speaks to a lot of internalized ableism that this this caller may may have been may have been feeling when mm-hmm. he was approached by this guy. Internalized. Ableism. Can you unpack that term for people who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, so ableism is just the general discrimination of somebody with a disability. And then internalized ableism is where you take all those views on disability if you are somebody living with a disability and you turn them in on yourself. So you you feel bad about yourself because you're disabled. You feel like you shouldn't be disabled because you're disabled. All these things. Mm-hmm. All these feelings around disability, you turn it on yourself. You know, the, we talk a lot about internalized homophobia, where people internalize the hatred, or gay people internalize the hatred directed at uh, queer people by the culture. And there's also all sorts of studies where a famous one of 
little uh, African-American girls who were given a choice between a white doll and a black doll and chose the white doll. And it was evidence of internalized sort of racial preferences or racial coding or racist beauty ideals or just ideal ideals. So this isn't just something that disabled people face. So many of us face this and sometimes on multiple fronts, internalized uh, hatreds or or, or phobias or, or negative messaging about the people that we are ourselves. Exactly. And I think what this caller was experiencing, I mean, the call did take a really, a really sharp left turn there. I was surprised. I had to listen to it twice to be like, wow, because I wasn't expecting what he said about his, his disability. But it just shows how ingrained this idea of perfection is mm-hmm. in our culture, especially within the LGBTQ culture. And so what this, what this caller may have been experiencing was he's looking for perfection because that's what he's been taught to, to look for. And this person... May this other individual that's approaching him may be great. He may just need it. He may need time to get to know this guy, and he may genuinely not be attracted to him. But I think there is a lot of ableism that could play in here. And so you think, you know, one of his questions is: Is it wrong to go out with someone uh, that you're pretty sure you, you're not going to be attracted to or not catch feelings for, just to be nice? And would your advice then be go out with the guy because you don't know, maybe? interacting with this guy, you will become attracted to him or overcome your internalized uh, ableism and something will click into gear. So do you think he should err on the side of going out with the guy, not just to be nice, but because there might be something there? I would say that, I mean, in either case, he could make a friend. He could, mm-hmm. he could make a friend with a disability so they could talk about disability stuff together. Um, and if something did spark, great. But I think to deny him based on based on the fact that he's disabled when the caller himself lives with a pretty significant disability is really kind of unfair. And I think he should consider going out with him just to see if at the very least there's a friendship there or not. But as a disabled person yourself, if you were out on a date with someone and you realized they were there just to be nice, that it was kind of a pity date, a pity fuck version of a date, would that upset you? Or would you think, well, at least they gave me a chance. At least they were open to a friendship, if nothing else. Or would you be upset? Would would be pity fuck dating upset you? Well, I've been pity fucked before. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is very upsetting. It is really upsetting. And I think if, if the caller is genuinely not attracted to this guy in any way, then he should maybe say, like, right off the bat, hey, let's just go for coffee as friends. But I think... It sounded like from his call there may be there may be some some stuff there that he wants to explore, but he didn't quite know how to do that. So I think if he really doesn't want to hang out with this guy and and doesn't want it at all, he should say up front like, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. But if he if he wants to see where it can go, he should say let's just go for coffee and see. Be really upfront about that too, so that the person on the other end doesn't have any major expectations of falling in love and having this grand relationship Mm -hmm. and just knows what he's getting into. Yeah. You always want to err on the side of not giving someone false hope because the fall is much harder. Uh, And that applies just across the boards, not just to this issue. Let's quickly uh, dispense with his other question. And then I have a question for you from a friend uh, who I told him I was going to talk to you and he actually wanted me to put this challenging question to you coming up. But this question, is it shallow not to be attracted to someone with physical attributes 
that aren't their fault? And my answer would be not necessarily. I'm not attracted to women. Those physical attributes, not their fault as persons, but I'm just not attracted to women. Uh, maybe there's a point at which it becomes shallow, uh, but broadly and generally, is it okay not to be attracted to people because they have physical attributes that aren't their fault? I think it's okay. I, I do think it's okay. I think why I found, and I listened to the call, like I said a bunch of times to really get my head around it, why I found it troubling was because it was, that question was connected to the disability part, and mm-hmm. that's where I was initially like, oh, okay, that is that is slightly a problem for me and that he may not be, and this, I think he mentioned that like just before he mentioned that he was also disabled. So it was kind of jarring that he would say that. Like, what if the, what if the other party didn't like him because he had, he, he lacked a hand. So, I mean, I think that it's okay, but I think the way that it was connected to disability here kind of caught me off guard, but I think generally, yes, it's okay. But I think the way that it was connected here was, Kind of shallow, potentially, yeah. yeah. And I do yeah. think that I, I do think that people need to be thoughtful about what you're attracted to and who you're attracted to and why, because a lot of times the things that we think we're attracted to are the things we've been told to find attractive. And if we yeah. really examine our prejudices around attraction, we may find that we're attracted to more and different types of people than we realized when we first began having sex or dating or coming out. You know, the range of guys I was attracted to when I was. 15, 16, 17, 18 years old and first coming out was a lot narrower than the range of guys I'm attracted to now. And it's because I wanted what I thought I'd been, I wanted what I'd been instructed by the culture to want, not just gay culture, but straight culture too. Like these were the kinds of guys who were hot and no other kinds of guys were hot. And that was a message that the culture sent, uh, you know, and I was steeped in heteronormative media at the time. So I picked up on that, even though it wasn't directly targeting me. And then along comes gay porn, along comes gay culture, which reinforces those same sort of types and preferences. And at a certain point, you have to step back and say, am I limiting myself here? Are, is, are these the guys I want or are these the guys that I've been told to want or the guys I think other people will be jealous of me if I have because these are the guys everybody wants? And you'll find, I think, if you interrogate your desires in a thoughtful way, and this is just general advice for everybody, not just about disability, but also disability, that you are going to find yourself attracted to more people. And that means you will have more potential partners in a broader selection if you want just one person for your entire life a broader selection you know more to choose from when you're finding yeah. that one person <laughs> i mean exactly when i was coming when i was coming out and up until a point recently i was only i would say oh my my partner my sex partner has to be able-bodied because of x y reasons and because they can lift me out of my chair and i would make excuses for why they would have to be able-bodied and muscular and have all these reasons around my disability, why it was easier because they could take care of me, blah, blah. But what I was really doing was limiting myself to a really narrow stereotype of what I thought I wanted and not allowing myself to see past that. So even though I advocate for difference, there are moments where my internalized ableism plays into that homonormative idea of what I should be looking for. So here's the question from a friend who I said I was going to be talking to you, and he asked me to put this to you. And he's too embarrassed to call in uh, and ask this himself because he's worried about offending you. Um, but he's attracted to guys uh, because of their disability. Not despite, but because. He's attracted to certain kinds of disabled guys. Should he feel terrible about that? Is that fetishizing? As a disabled person yourself, you know there are people out there. I think it's called yeah. aficionados. There are people out there 
who are attracted Actually, to... Actually, it's called uh, devotees. Devotees. Sorry, a little brain fart there. Um, is that offensive to you as a disabled person? Or is there a, can someone be attracted to people because they're disabled and still see them as people? Not fetishizing them, not turning them into objects, but attracting them for this reason and able to be potentially a good partner and someone that a disabled person might want to date. I think you can. I think that I think when I go out in the world and the way I have built my brand around disability and sexuality is to to use my disability as a selling point and to mm-hmm. play with it. And that's why I refer to myself as a queer cripple and a cripple content creator. I play with all that stuff and I make jokes about my joystick and I make jokes about all, like all that stuff to to show that my disability is a part of the experience. I think where and a joyful part of your experience. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's. There are positive. There are definitely positive parts of it. I'm, but what I try to do in my work is to talk about also, you know, the tough stuff because there are moments where being mm-hmm. disabled and queer is not a happy time. So there, I think what what I try to do is talk about all that stuff. But I think for your friend, you can be attracted to somebody because they're disabled. Where where the issue is is if you tried to disable me more in in our relationship because you would got off on that or if you mm-hmm. disabled me more during our sex because that was you wanted to play play on that or you, you did something to only focus on the fact that I, that you were gonna disable me to then save me as an able bodied person or something. That's where the the fetishizing part becomes a problem for me. I think to be attracted to somebody because they're disabled is kinda hard actually. So I mean I, I'm I'm okay with it as long as we discuss as you know the two people or or multiple people discuss you know the boundaries and what that means for them great advice andrew gerza disability awareness consultant cripple content creator check out his podcast disability after dark podcast the podcast shining light on sex and disability and follow him on twitter as i do at andrew gerza hey andrew thanks so much it was really great talking to you and i'd love to have you on again sometime you're really good at this advice shit let's have you back that's totally awesome thank you so much for having me Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 33-year-old straight woman, and uh, my husband is 35, and we've been together for about five years. Um, My question is about having mismatched libidos um, indirectly. So I've always had the higher libido, and we've talked about it several times over the years, um, usually initiated by me when I feel kind of rejected or, or insecure about not having sex for a while or whatever. Um, recently we talked about, um, when we talked about it, he admitted to me that he wished that there were more of like a chase element to our sex life. Like it were, he wished that it were harder work, more work for him to get me into bed. Um, so when he knows that I'm basically up for it at any time, whenever he is, obviously that takes the fun out of the chase element. Um, so my basic question is, how can I turn up the chase factor with our sex life when we both know that I'm the one with the higher libido? What complicates this whole question is the fact that I'm almost eight months pregnant right now. We're both really happy about that. We're excited to have our first kid. My libido hasn't changed, um, but we have had sex less than ever during my pregnancy. I've tried to be fair to him and not bug him about it very much because I figure he's got a bunch of new things on his mind. Um, I don't necessarily feel my sexiest and my energy levels are frankly lower. And I also think ahead to life with a kid and I assume that having sex with my husband won't be as easy as it was before we have a kid. 
So the more complicated question is, um, how do I turn up the chase factor while I'm pregnant? <laughs> and also, you know, assuming that we're going to have a different kind of sex life after we have the kid. I think that my libido will probably always stay higher than his. And maybe the pregnancy thing is just something to see as a, just a temporary thing that, that will come back to some semblance of normal. The, the overarching issue is the fact that I have a higher libido and he knows it, but I think he wants to be in a position where he can actually seduce me or, or get me into bed without knowing that it's already a done deal. I want to give your husband the benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to unpack my doubts first. Sometimes people in this kind of relationship, this mismatch, where there is the person with the higher libido, the person with the lower libido, the person with the lower libido will tell the person with the higher libido that the reason that they're not having sex or as much sex as they could be having is that they're turned off because they know that the other person always wants it because there's no tension, there's no seduction, that they don't have to seduce the person, that they don't get to initiate themselves because you're always ready and so they say, back off. You stop initiating. Let me seduce you. And then what happens is even less sex than happening already, even less sex than happening right now because they're not actually interested in having more sex than they're having or that they want to have. They're just interested in you shutting up and not pestering them anymore to have sex. It's not that they don't want you to initiate because it kills their libido. It's that they don't want you to initiate because they don't want to have sex. Because they have a much lower libido than you do or, or no libido and they feel guilty every time you initiate and they don't want to have sex. They have to sort of confront the disconnect and the big problem in your relationship and it makes them feel guilty. So this is a way of getting you to shut up and go away. And it's kind of a libido shaming tactic that, oh, we would be having a lot more sex than we're having if only you weren't always ready. If only you didn't want to have sex. If only you weren't asking for sex. If only you weren't initiating, I would be initiating. Hey, you stop initiating. You stop wanting it and I'll want it. A lot of people in the low libido seat will throw this out there and then the person will stop initiating and then there will be less and less and less sex than there is already. So that's my doubt that your husband isn't being sincere when he says that there is this disconnect, that your libidos really don't fit together. And you know what? This disconnect was something that you guys should have taken into account or discussed or been able to articulate much earlier in the relationship because perhaps you weren't a match for a long-term sexually exclusive relationship, if this was the case, if the way your libido works kills his libido, yeah, maybe not a match. Maybe you ought to prioritize sexual compatibility before you scramble your DNA together and crank out a kid. But you didn't and here we are. So what do you do? Now, giving your husband the benefit of the doubt, those were my doubts. Here's the benefit of the doubt. This is how his libido works and you know this now. Might have been better to know it then, but you know it now. How do you accommodate his libido without – your sex life completely evaporating, which I'm here from the future of parenting to tell you it is going to completely evaporate for a while after your infant comes. Keep it mellow, lay back, you're both exhausted, masturbate together, look in each other's eyes, promise each other that when you're less exhausted, when the kid is less demanding, you will have a sex life again. You will not stew in resentment for how little sex you're having or that it's just masturbating and exhausted sex now because that resentment will kill it. For sure, later. Okay, but anyway, if what he says is true, the way your libido works kills his libido, how do you create accommodation? Where he knows that you're up for sex whenever, and so his powers of seduction aren't really required, how do you have sex that allows him to seduce in the context where you're always ready? Well, you make a game out of it. 
you agree for the, these weeks or the, this month that you're going to have sex, he's going to initiate, and it's his job in this game to initiate at moments of inconvenience to you, 15 minutes before you have to be out the door to get to work or shows up at your work and you have to figure out a place to fuck the husband in the office, find a stairwell, find a single-seater bathroom, whatever, or at a moment when you're really tired and want to go to bed and you're going to have plenty of those moments in the next year and a half, I promise you, those moments, and he could press his advantage at those moments and attempt to seduce you when you're really not, perhaps not not wanting sex because you always want sex, but it's not convenient for you to have the sex that you want right this second. Encourage him to find those right this seconds when it's not a good time for you and attempt to seduce you then. All of those attempts may not be successful because maybe you can't find a place at work to fuck. Or maybe you have to be out the door and fucking right this minute or a quickie isn't going to work for you. But there will be times when it is successful, times when he can nuzzle your neck long enough and say the right dirty words to get you to have sex at this inconvenient moment. Sex that you want because you always want it, but not sex when you want. That's the place where you can find that sweet spot where he is able to seduce. But there has to be compromise both ways where you are still allowed to initiate. You are still allowed to ask. And if at times you are horny and he is not, he should be there for you, happy to hold you or play with your tits or cuddle you while you masturbate and use your Hitachi magic wand or whatever vibrator you happen to have by the side of the bed for those moments when you need to take care of yourself, that he can be there for you. And who knows, in those moments, often the low libido partner and the high libido partner agree that there are times when you're going to masturbate and I will give you a masturbatory assist. Sometimes a low libido partner catches a groove and suddenly wants to have sex and then is glad that they did. So you can make an accommodation that allows him to seduce. He can make an accommodation that allows you to have more release or sexual experiences that involve him but don't require his full participation. These compromises and accommodations have to be a two-way street. Hi, Dan. A long-time listener, Magnum subscriber. I just got back from vacationing in the Great Lakes. I live on the West Coast, and it was kind of a shit storm. I guess, in essence, my question is, how do you tell when a girl, uh, in this case my niece, almost 18, is merely being overly affectionate with her father or if there's something more there. She is very close with him, has gotten closer in the last year or two. Uh, they did not live together through most of their lives. Now they do, but she um, hugs him and touches him and hangs on him and snuggles him in a way that makes all of the women in my family very uncomfortable. One of my younger sisters believes there's actually more going on she said when watching them walk away to uh, bed together in a bunkhouse, they slept in a bunkhouse, separate beds, she said that they looked like they were boyfriend and girlfriend, and now she's freaked out. She and her husband think they need to call social services, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just a socially awkward 18, 17-year-old girl who really loves her dad, and just like other girls and boys I've seen, when they're young, sometimes they're extremely affectionate. Where is the line there? Do we need to do anything? All the women in my family just keep saying it over and over again, how uncomfortable it makes them and how their intuition tells them that something might be going on here. None of us want to think this of my brother, the girl's father. To me, it's 
almost unimaginable knowing him the way I have known him over the years. But what should we look for? What should we do? Should someone say something to the father or the daughter? And what do you say? Um, I mean, if nothing else, uh, we kind of think she needs to know that in social situations, it's very awkward for people to watch the way she acts. I personally don't see it. I just see an affectionate girl, you know, a girl without a boyfriend, without any friends, whose hormones are raging, as all of ours did at that age. That's all I see. The women in my family disagree with me to some extent. What should I do? What should we look for? What should we say? And to whom? The detail here that leapt out at me is that your brother and his daughter only recently made each other's acquaintance. Uh, Your family members, if you'd like to make everyone even more uncomfortable or in still panic, might want to Google Westermark effect and genetic sexual attraction. The Westermark effect uh, posits, theorizes that the incest taboo is not genetically hardwired. It's actually something we learn. Siblings raised in close proximity uh, become desensitized to sexual attraction, that the incest taboo is not hardwired, that it is acquired through proximity, through closeness. And genetic sexual attraction is something that often gets discussed in the context of adult adoptees seeking their birth families because it has happened often enough that now adult adoptees seeking their birth families are often warned about genetic sexual attraction or people who weren't raised in close proximity, who only meet up later in life, are physically sexually attracted to each other, compelled, drawn toward each other sexually. Many adult adoptees who sought their birth families, in some cases, wound up fucking their birth families, sleeping with mom or dad or a sibling, and then feeling like monsters, feeling terrible uh, about this, that they'd done this horrible thing, that they violated the incest taboo. But the incest taboo, in this case, wasn't there because... The Westermark thing did not happen. What you describe has me concerned. You aren't concerned or you think everybody else's fears are overblown. I think we need to err on the side here of an intervention. If nothing's going on, at the very least, your brother needs to know that he's behaving in such a way with his adult daughter that everyone thinks something might be going on or could be going on the way in which they're behaving or making everyone around them, other family members, extremely uncomfortable. And they might need to course correct. And if something is going on, an intervention needs to happen. You need to err on the side of intervening. You say that this girl, your niece, has no boyfriend and no friends. Is it possible that your brother is isolating his daughter in this way? Isolating someone is one of the early and largest red flags of the abuser. Is this grooming behavior on your brother's part? I don't know. Just tossing that out there. Just putting that on the table because I think it's another thing that needs to be taken into consideration. While you guys weigh not whether there's going to be an intervention, not whether something is going to be said to your brother, but when. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk you. Uh, This question stems from a caller that you had few episodes ago, a grown man that was very uh, concerned about his penis size. Now, I've never been concerned about my penis size, uh, but the, his question and your response got me thinking, why do small penises still exist? You would think that they would have been naturally selected out of the gene pool. So I guess I'm wondering about the science and genetics around dick size. 
you automatically just get your dad's dick and it's handed down through generations or could you maybe get your maternal grandpa's dick or does your dick size and shape have absolutely nothing to do with the uh, dick sizes and shapes that you are descended from? All right. Joining me by phone to help tackle this very important question, Jesse Baring, Associate Professor of Science Communication at the University of Otago in New Zealand, frequent Savage Love and Savage Love cast guest expert and the author, very pertinently, of Why is the Penis Shaped Like That and Other Reflections on Being Human. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Dan. How are you? Great. Thanks for jumping on the phone. I know it's really early in the morning uh, down there or over there or up there or wherever the hell New Zealand is. Uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's an interesting question. So with the universal preference for larger dicks, how come natural selection hasn't done the work over the centuries, over the millennia, and today everyone doesn't have a big dick? How come we all don't have giant penises if there's this preference and natural selection and evolution at work? Why aren't all dicks big? Well, it's actually a more complicated question than it might appear at first glance. Um, and first of all, I should say that small penises would be at a selective disadvantage from an evolutionary perspective. Um, larger penises um, go deeper into the vaginal canal in terms of reaching um, or closer to the or proximity to the cervix. Mm-hmm. And they can also remove the semen um, or the, the sperm cells of uh, men that have had sex with the same woman um, prior to their insertion. The de- yeah, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about why the penis is shaped like that is the human penis is basically functions in the vaginal canal like a plunger. It sucks out anything that somebody else might have left there recently. Right. So the coronal ridge that's sort of um, the, the head of the car. Yeah, the, the hood, the underneath, the sort of umbrella lip actually pulls out the sperm cells of men that have gone before you. Um, so it's, it's semen displacement device um, is what it's. And a bigger dick will be more efficient at displacing other semen. Absolutely. It goes deeper and it can remove more semen. And also there's... So why aren't, so why aren't natural selection? Is, does this mean Charles Darwin was lying? Is evolution not true? How come all dicks aren't big then? Well, um, first of all, small penises actually function quite well. I mean, we have to remember also that ejaculate um, is a, has quite propulsion behind it and, and it could actually um, go quite far um, in terms of... Um, in, in terms of impregnation. So that's, it's not just simply a matter of length or girth, but um, how um, far your semen shoots, I guess, into the vaginal canal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a little gun can go off pretty, make a loud bang. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it is at a, smaller penises are at a disadvantage, like I said, um, compared to, to bigger penises, but um, they still work. Um, they're functional. It's not like they um, they can't do the job. So, mm-hmm. so um, women, of course, are the other side of the coin. I mean, female reproductive anatomy, their individual differences in um, vaginal depth, I guess. So, you know, it's it's also about the compatibility between the penis and the vagina. And we also have to remember that you know women aren't actually um, making. Uh, mating decisions on the basis of having the luxury of looking at a penis, <laughs> typically, unless you know you're watching, um, you know, naked attraction on Channel Four, where uh, where they seem to be um, choosing um, penises that are much more sort of on the average side of the spectrum, the Goldilocks principle. Yeah, 
on that show, people get to see each other, get to see their prospective partners fully naked. And what you've observed uh, in a scientific capacity watching this program is that women aren't going for the giant penises or the small penises. They're going for, in a Goldilocks style, the just right penises. Not too big, not too small, just right. That seems to be the way that it's trending, yeah. Um, I think that there's, I don't know if I would say fear or aversion <laughs> to, you know, especially <laughs> large penises, but um you know, those, you know, the very big penises, giant penises aren't um, always the most desirable organs. They're also, you know, we hear from people who are, have partners who have, whose penises are too big, that they literally can't have sex with them. They literally cannot be penetrated by these penises. So it is possible if evolution was, uh, you know, selecting for, if natural selection was at work here and we, our penises were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you could end up naturally selecting big dicks to the point of extinction Natural selection doesn't always improve a species. Isn't that true? Can natural selection push a species toward extinction? Um, well, basically, I mean, it's not, it's not anything that we're sort of consciously engineering. Um, it, whatever works, works in terms of uh, mm-hmm. shape and size. And, and again, it's a really sort of complex dynamic between female reproductive anatomy and, and male, um, male anatomy. <laughs> so these things mm-hmm. sort of work hand in hand or penis and vagina, um, <laughs> lack of a better and, and what role do gay men play in natural selection when it comes to penis size? Just admiring from the from the from the grandstands? I, I mean, from speaking from personal experience, I would imagine very little. Actually, um, I think you know <laughs> um, we you know we've got some of the same issues in terms of accommodation and in terms of our body and um, um, receptivity in terms of size. You know, you don't want that, an extraordinarily large penis necessarily. Um, I don't know. I've seen pictures uh, of guys sitting on traffic cones. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's not all guys. Not all gay men want to sit on traffic cones, but those gay guys are out there. But in terms of, I mean, in terms of the evolutionary process and natural selection, I don't think that gay men, um, in terms of their preference, size queens and so on, I don't think that really plays much of a role. I think perhaps the, the premise of the question is flawed. You know, gentlemen prefer blondes. Why isn't everybody blonde? Well, because not everybody prefers blondes. You know, everybody loves a bigger dick. Everybody wants bigger dicks. Well, actually, that's not true, as evidenced by uh, what we're seeing on Channel 4 right now with this program. What's it called again? Uh, Naked Attraction. Naked Attraction. That it's not all – people aren't always picking the biggest possible penis from the lineup. And as you pointed out, Jesse, people don't always get to see the penis in advance of deciding whether to mate with someone or not. Yeah, and I think, you know, and and I think if we have to – if we're thinking about evolutionary processes um, and ancestral conditions when, you know, there were – fewer clothes <laughs> and you know um, penis size might have been more more readily um viewable i think it, it could have played a more prominent role actually in the ancestral past because you know we've been mm-hmm. able to see it of course there's this whole, the whole sort of growing versus showing phenomena too um so you don't necessarily know when a penis is blasted how large it actually can be uh, I do think, and I do think that we probably are not attracted to micro penises. <laughs> you know, you know, most of us have our limits. This is sort of, you know, you don't want this sort of extreme end on either side. I mean, I, I, I would, I would point out that penises and penis size and shape and appearance is pretty heritable. We do know that our penises resemble our father's penises fairly closely, actually, very much like our. Wow. Very much like our hands, which is kind of disturbing if you think about it. I don't like to think that I have my father's penis <laughs> necessarily, but um, you know there is quite a strong genetic component to penis appearance and size. And what about flavor and aroma? Um, 
Well, that goes. Back. No that goes with studies not in. Yeah, I think we're sort of waiting the day. We're waiting the day still on some of those aesthetic <laughs> issues. Jesse Baring, why is the penis shaped like that? And other reflections on being human. Just one of his books. Another one of his books. Perv, the sexual deviant in all of us, and there are more. Jesse, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was very uh, illuminating. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female living here in Colorado. I received a uh, message a couple days ago from a mutual friend between me and my male cousin. She sent me these links of my cousin's boyfriend on the sex worker advertisement pages. And um, I'm fairly certain my cousin doesn't know his boyfriend is in sex work. They've been together about a year or so. And uh, of course, they never mentioned it to me, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't doesn't know about it because... We're pretty close, and I feel like he would have mentioned it. But now, now that I know this information, I don't know what to do with it. I, I feel like on one hand, if he doesn't know, I should tell him, and on the other hand, if I he does know and he's okay with it, that it's none of my business. And so I'm kind of unsure what to tell him, and or if I should tell him, or if I should just, as you would say, toss down the memory hole and pretend this never happened. I'd love your advice on whether or not I should say something to my cousin, and if I should say something to him, what should I say? So a couple of years ago, I stumbled over an ad on Craigslist featuring photos, a sex workout featuring photos of a friend who we have the kind of relationship where we can say anything to each other. We're also pro-sex workers, sex workers' rights. So I said to him, I didn't know you were doing sex work. And he said to me, What? And it turned out that someone had grabbed his photos off his Instagram account and maliciously created an ad on Craigslist, IDing him as a sex worker to fuck with him, maliciously to fuck with him. That could be the case here. It could also be the case that your cousin's boyfriend does sex work and your cousin knows and doesn't have a problem with it. Maybe it's how they met. That sometimes happens too. Actually, I don't want to encourage people who think that they can date sex workers. That rarely happens, but I know a couple of guys where it did happen, but it rarely happens. Please don't live in false hope of upgrading your client provider relationship with your sex worker to a romantic relationship because it rarely happens. Although I know a couple people that happen. Anyway, uh, he may know and not have announced it to the entire family, not have done a Facebook status update about his boyfriend doing sex work or that his new boyfriend is a sex worker because there's a stigma around sex work. And people who date sex workers, so great is the stigma, typically don't let mom and dad know or even siblings, much less distant cousins, sometimes not even friends because they don't want to be judged and they don't want their partner to be shamed or looked at funny at Thanksgiving. Or treated differently. All that said, it's also possible that your cousin doesn't know. And so, at the end of the day, I do think that you should give your cousin a heads up. Not an anonymous heads up. Don't create a Gmail account or a Hotmail account. Hotmail doesn't exist anymore. I'm dating myself here. Don't create an email account just to send him an anonymous message letting him know that this is going on. Give him a call and say, stumbled over this, no problem with sex work. I listen to the Savage Lovecast. Of course, I have no problem with sex work, consensual sex work between adults, no problem, but was just concerned that you didn't know this or that someone was maliciously creating ads uh, or, or har harassing your boyfriend in this way. So just tossing this to you because you should know either way. And if you do know and he's a sex worker, I have no problem with that and that's great. And if you need me to be sworn to secrecy, Swear me to secrecy. I promise I will be discreet. But I felt that I had to 
reach out to you and let you know about this because Dan Savage told me I had to. Hey, Dan, this is a straightish, pretty stoned cis male in the Northwest. I find myself in my early 40s feeling a little insecure about the size of my penis. It's astonishingly average. I haven't had any complaints and I have plenty of other tools at my disposal. I noticed that earlobes, which are soft tissue, much like penises, are stretchable almost to an infinite degree. And I got to thinking that if soft tissues stretch, then penises probably do too. And I was wondering if I got a penis pump and pumped it up and slept with it every day for a month, would my penis get bigger? If so, then do you know of any unintentional side effects? Lack of sensitivity, reduced sensitivity, erectile dysfunction, anything like that. I don't know if you know or you know someone that knows, but I would like to know, and I'm probably not the only one. Thanks a lot, Dan. Oh, my God, your call depresses me. You have an average penis. Most people have an average penis. That's why they're called average. That's what the average is. And you're in your, and you never had any complaints about your average, functional, wonderful penis. And you're in your mid-40s and you're still insecure about the size of your dick. Get the fuck over it. Your dick is your dick. And it's the only dick you're ever going to have. Embrace and love your dick. That's your dick. That said, yeah, earlobes, a soft tissue. You can stretch that. Penis, a soft tissue. Most of the time, there are erectile chambers in your penis. The corpora cavernosa, that's where the erectile tissue is. That doesn't really stretch. You can't really make that bigger, but you can damage it, and you don't want to damage it. Those penis pumps that make a dick look temporarily larger, you're just giving the dick, the surface skin, you're just giving your dick a giant hickey. Temporary swelling that can damage the tissue if you do it enough. You can end up with a slightly larger looking penis in the shower at the gym that's less functional when you need it, when it's hard, because you've damaged it, because you're insecure in your early 40s about the size of your dick, something you should have gotten over in your late teens or early 20s, tops. So please don't treat your dick like an earlobe. There's more going on inside your dick. Physiologically, your dick is a lot more complicated. It's an organ. Leave it the fuck alone. Don't torture it. Earlobe's just a bit of skin and flesh. Your dick is all sorts of things. Nerve endings, erectile chambers, spongy tissues. Leave it alone. Except when you need it, when it's hard, then go to town. Have fun with it. Continue to have the fun you've been having for more than two decades. And stop obsessing about bigger dicks or your dick getting bigger. Your dick is just fine the way it is. Leave it alone. If you want to stretch something, hamstrings or those earlobes. Hey, Dan. I live in New York. I love your show. And I was doing laundry listening to it today. And I realized or noticed that there seems to be a lot of Canadians that call into your show. Are Canadians more sexually enlightened than Americans? Is it uh, a product of your market in Seattle? I mean... What's the deal? I'm just curious. Canadians are just better in every possible way, including that they listen to my show at perhaps a slightly higher rate than Americans listen to my show. Look at their prime minister. Yeah, they're more sex positive than we are at this moment. When they had Stephen Harper and we had Barack Obama, yeah, they were behind in the sex positivity race, maybe when it came to chief executives or heads of state. But now, now, Canada, Canada, Canada is way out in front. 
Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to um, your um, statement on the show that you would like us to call in if we can come on command. I have always been able to come on command. It is not like a all the time thing, but usually if I'm aroused and in the mood, I can make myself come by just tensing my body. Um, so it works. You were skeptical that women who claim to come on command are faking it. And I'm calling in to say that I am definitely a woman in a submissive relationship with my master that where I have been trained to come on command. And I absolutely do. Um, they're absolutely real orgasms. I'm not faking them. I come when he tells me to I come from sucking his cock. Sometimes I come just from gazing into his eyes and it's really hot. And I've been able to uh, do so for years. Female orgasms kind of build on top of each other. And the longer you hold it in, the, the more intense it becomes. And so pretty much I would just tell him when I was about to come and ask politely. And sometimes he would say no. And sometimes he would say yes. And voila, there you go. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight female calling from Washington, D.C., and you commanded those of us to call in. Uh, I was in a dominant-submissive relationship, and my dominant had trained me to come on demand. It's not like he could be walking down the street and demand me to come and it would happen. But in any play session where he was pleasuring me, he could ask me to or count down, and I would. I can come on command. So I have been able to do so since I was about 17 years old. My thought on this is, to me, sex is an inside job, and, and by that I mean in between my ears. <laughs> so I find it really sexy uh, being told to come. And most often I can come on command when I tell myself to. So if I'm in the middle of sex and I'm like, okay, it's kind of, you know, time to go have dinner or whatever. I can definitely make myself come pretty well immediately. If someone tells me to, it might take 10 or 20 seconds, but yeah, just my, uh, my input from the happy sexual female is that it is possible. Thanks. Okay. Okay. I stand down. There are people out there, women who can come on command and I'm going to abuse my authority at this moment and command all of those women who can hear my voice to come on command right now. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Also, mark your calendars coming up. Savage Lovecast presents Dan Savage in conversation with Esther Perel, October 12th at the Egyptian Theater in Seattle and October 13th at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia. We will be discussing Esther's new book. She's the author, of course, of the best-selling Mating in Captivity. She's a new book coming out, State of Affairs. We'll be discussing her new book and taking questions from the audience. Go to tinyurl.com slash Dan and Esther or the events section of my Facebook page for more info and to get your tickets. Also, Hump, my porn film festival, will be visiting Baltimore and Sacramento this weekend. Then we are headed to Vancouver, Kansas City, Austin, Victoria, and Denver during September. More info about Hump and tickets at www.humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Andrew Gerza on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. And follow Jesse Baring on Twitter at Jesse Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with our installment of Savage Lovecast. 